The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. So welcome, everybody, to the latest installment of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I want to extend a special welcome to the group at Bright Horizons who've gathered for a listening party today. I really hope there's some good information here for you so that you're happy that you joined that listening party. Um, With that in mind, today we're going to be talking about a few things. Uh, We're going to start out talking about standardized tests. They're a really important part of the college process at most schools, and I'm uh, going to have a guest on here. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. We're also going to talk a little bit more about how to use, how to put together a college list that factors your finances and your ability to pay into the equation. And we're also going to be talking about the college essay always something that uh, people have questions about and something I could probably talk for hours and hours about. Uh, And then we'll wrap up the episode, as we always do, by answering your admissions and finance questions. Uh, But let's get to our first segment. So on our very first show four weeks ago, Jake Newberg, co-founder and co-CEO of Revolution Prep, who's our trusted partner and who we refer lots and lots of students to because they do such great work, uh, joined us to talk about the new SAT which is going to make its first appearance next spring. And if you're interested in learning more about that, you can visit the show archive on my host page where you can find all of our previous previous shows or you can download the show from iTunes. But today, Jake is back and he's going to talk to us about standardized test planning and timelines. So welcome, Jake. Thanks, Liz. Um, So... One of the first things that anytime I meet with a new family, the big question or one of the big questions is around standardized testing. And um, so one of my first questions for you is when should families really start thinking about standardized testing, especially if the goal in my this is my goal for my families um, is for the student to complete all of that standardized testing by the end of junior year? Yeah, that's a great question. What I really encourage students to do is the same as you. Ideally, you're finished by the end of junior year, so then you can be focused on your college applications. I even ideally like to push it up a little bit, if possible, because the end of junior year is a really intense time. Mm -hmm. It's finals. It's when your grades matter more than any other time in your academic career. A lot of kids have AP exams. And it's ideal not to drop the SAT right into middle of that so a a May or a June date. Ideally, kids are finished with it by the March or April administration of the SAT or ACT. So when should they start preparing? I really feel that the best time to start studying for the SAT or ACT is the summer between uh, between sophomore year and junior year. Oh, okay. So... um I think that brings up a good point because you said studying for the SAT or the ACT. 
one of my developing pet peeves is that um, sometimes my students come to me, they've already been working with a tutor or they've already started prep on their own and probably because we're on the East Coast or often on the West Coast and not in the Midwest, but it seems to me like they almost always start with the SAT and then only start thinking about the ACT if they're not doing well on the SAT. And so one of my big pieces of advice to families is you need to figure out which is the best test first rather than just plunging ahead with, well, I'll do the ACT because that's what everyone else takes or I'll do the SAT because that's what everyone else takes. So one big question that I have for you is how do you decide which test to focus on, um, whether it's going to be the SAT or the ACT? Yeah, we hear that question a lot, and it's a really good question. Um, For most kids, they're going to do similarly on either test. But for some kids, they'll do significantly better on one versus the other. A big question I'll get is, oh, I hear the ACT is easier. Well. If it was easier, wouldn't that have gotten out? Um, so <laughs> exactly. It's not that one is easier or one is harder, but it might be a better test for you. Mm-hmm. So um, that is definitely a possibility. What we recommend is just take a full-length practice in each. There's so many ways I've heard people try to figure out, oh, I hear the ACT is easier for girls or this or that. Um, take a practice in both. They can contact us at Revolution. We can give them a practice SAT and a practice ACT. If you do better on one, significantly better, just focus on it. If you do about the same, pick which one you like best because every college is really going to take either of those. So that's what we recommend doing in that, in that kind of first phase because ideally you know which one by the time sophomore year finishes. So you're not figuring that out in the summer. You figure that out in kind of the last months of sophomore year. And so summer comes around and you have a study plan. So back to that original plan, when should students um, start? They should start intensive studying in that summer. But really that means they should start thinking about it around now of sophomore year. So second semester, sophomore year, take a practice of each, get a study plan down, which means... um, I know what weeks I'm going to be doing it. I know how many hours per week. I have my goals. This is I'm starting on a 28 with the ACT. I'm shooting for a 33. Um, just like anything, if you plan it, if you set some goals, you're going to be much more likely to be successful. Right. So really what you're saying is that you're starting probably after freshman year, maybe freshman year you get a pass, you don't really have to think about it too much, but sophomore year is when it's time to at least start figuring out, okay, well, which one of these tests am I going to take? And I think that's really good advice. I give that advice to everybody. I think even if you're sitting there and you're listening and you are um, at, towards the end of your junior, or it's, I guess it's still only February, but it's February of your junior year and you haven't started thinking about it yet, it's still not too late for you to at least you know, take a couple of full-length practice tests, figure out which is the right one for you, start to think about intensive prep, um, getting the testing done. What Jake and I are describing here are sort of ideal scenarios, but don't forget that it's not too late to create your own scenario. And if you're doing testing in your senior year, so be it. Um, But at least be smart about the way that you approach it and don't just start with one because that's what everybody else is doing. Um, I think that's great advice that we're talking ideals, 
But, hey, if it's junior year right now and you haven't studied at all or you took a test and you're not happy with your score, there's still a lot you can do. If people only take away one thing, it's that studying for these tests can have a major, major impact, hundreds of points on the SAT. Uh, I've seen students go up dramatically. And so if you take only one thing away about standardized tests is that you're not stuck with whatever score you get the first time. Put in the effort and it'll be... um, time well spent. Absolutely. I think the real key there, put in the effort. So for parents who are listening and thinking, that's right, you know, my, my child can really raise the scores. It's your student who needs to put in the effort and do the work to make that happen. And so for you students out there who are listening, this is really your, it's in your court. And like you, Jake, I have seen students make tremendous strides forward, but only when they were really motivated to do so and really put in the time and energy. If you're not going to put in the time, then you're probably not going to see results from any kind of studying, whether you do it on your own or you work with um, a tutor or you take a class or do any of those things. Absolutely. I joke with parents. I wish we had a magic wand and we could just wave it over your kid and their scores would go up hundreds of points. But the reality of it is it takes effort. And that can be the real benefit of a great tutor is um, they can be a great motivator. They can get students excited by it. The challenge when parents just buy their kids a prep book and say, hey, go do it on your own. This is possibly the world's most boring topic to really (laughs) try to study on your own. No one's favorite Mm -hmm. subject in school was SAT prep. That's the challenge with doing it on on your own, and that's why having a great tutor there to guide you through it can be really, really valuable. Yeah, I mean, there are really very few students I've known over the years who were great at motivating themselves to do it. I think in a pinch, absolutely it can work that way, but it is always best to have someone sort of motivating the student along. So I completely agree. Um, so we've talked about kind of when they should start to prep. Um, do you think it's a good idea to sort of pick the date that the student's going to take the test first and then prep towards it? Or is it better maybe to start the prep, see where the student's at, and then decide on what test date they're going to do? Yeah, I think that it's fine to pick a date. It's kind of nice to have a concrete thing to be working towards, but um, the big benefit of starting earlier is you can push that date back. So if you're starting sophomore summer, so before junior year, and you say, hey, I'm going to take it for the first time in December or in January, and December comes around and you're not ready, you can always push it back to the next administration. So that's what I recommend is pick a date, but no, hey, I can always push it back. The other thing is you can take it multiple times. And most kids who are really academic kids and who are applying to numerous schools will take the SAT, we typically see two or three times. And they can take it more, but most common is, I would say, three times. Um, It's offered seven times per year, so you have a lot of chances to do it. Yeah, I see the same thing with both the SAT and the ACT. They're picking one test, and then they're likely taking it at least twice and often three times. And that's fine. That's certainly not a problem from the college's point of view. Um, So what about for the student who maybe is not going to start – they're not going to do a long run of prep. Maybe is that ideal for every student? What about the student who maybe is very limited in terms of the amount of time they have available to them? Is there any benefit to a more uh, intensive period of prep over a shorter period of time? Yeah, I think it, the, you want to have a balance. It really is a lot like working out. 
you can't expect to just get in great shape instantly in a week, no matter how if you work out 24-7 for a week. Um, this stuff does take some time to sink in. I'll stick with the workout analogy and say that, you know, if you're only working out one hour a week, that's also going to have limited effects. So mm-hmm. I usually recommend that kids are working on this at least twice a week. Um, during the school year, you're probably not going to have um, – a chance to do much more than twice during the week. But I would say the range is from twice a week, an hour each time, so a total of two hours a week. Um, Mm -hmm. The most common is probably 90 minutes each time, twice a week. If it is junior year, the second half of junior year, and you need to go more intensive, then I would add a session on the weekend and maybe push Mm -hmm. that to be two hours. Um, But it's always going to be a balance because what I tell students is you can't, spend so much time and effort studying for the SAT that your grades suffer because your grades are the most important. And so the most intensive you can handle without grade suffering is great. And again, that's why doing it over the summer is great. I would say an ideal plan over the summer is three times a week, uh, an hour and a half or two hours each time. You can see really significant gains over time. And if you do that for a good chunk of the summer, by the time you're in the fall tests, you might take it two times in the fall and be done. And that's such a great gift to roll through the rest of your junior year and be finished with it. Absolutely, it is. Well, Jake, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been super helpful. And I do want to remind people that uh, Jake was here earlier uh, a couple of episodes ago where we talked about the new SAT. I know a lot of people have questions about that. And I think and hope we answered quite a few of them on that segment. Um, And I'm hoping that he will join us again at some point. So uh, thanks again. And and if Thank um, you. Yeah, and if anyone's interested in checking out Revolution Prep, um, you can go to their websites, revolutionprep.com forward slash getting in. Um, so thanks again, Jake. Thank you so much. And uh, one thing we didn't get a chance to talk about is SAT subject tests. So anyone who wants to call into Revolution for advanced students, subject tests are really important, and we're happy to spend a lot of time talking with you about which are the right ones for you, and there's no charge for that. So. Um, Thanks so much for having me and have a great rest of your show. All right, great. Thank you. So after the break, we're going to have the third in our series on putting together a college list. This time we're going to be thinking about a list that factors finances and the ability to pay into the equation. So um, we'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters. 
the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. So welcome back, everybody. During the past two weeks, we've covered a few different facets of putting together a college list, from figuring out the right fit to the nuts and bolts of doing the actual research and starting to build a list. And today, my colleague, Kathy Ruby, who is former dean of financial aid at St. Olaf's, is here to discuss how to factor finances into the creation of a college list. So welcome, Kathy. Hi, Beth. Nice to be here. Well, we're happy to have you here because the reality for the vast majority of families in this country, especially and including my own, is that it's not going to be a simple thing to sit down and write a check for $60,000. And <laughs> um, I, it's very important when putting together a list to really be thoughtful about how much a family can afford and how much debt uh, a student might be willing to go into or even a parent might be willing to go into. And so... I think it never makes sense to create a list in a vacuum in terms of not thinking about that aspect of it when thinking about where your student's going to apply. So I think my very first question for you is, what does a family need to know in order to factor finances into the college list? Well, you know, somewhat obviously what a, what a family needs to know is how much different colleges cost, right? And that, yep. that's a more complicated question than, than it seems to be on, on the surface. So families can certainly look up the sticker price of colleges. You know, colleges publish their tuition fees, room and board on their websites, or you can use search uh, tools like College Board's Big Future website. They, they summarize information very nicely about different colleges. So you can look up the sticker price. But as most families know, and as we at College Coach know, many families don't pay the sticker price at a college. Um, you know, colleges and universities offer scholarships and grants, to reduce the price for, for students. Um, and, and really, it turns out that colleges and universities are the largest source of scholarships and grants in this country. I think we like to think the government provides a lot of grants and private organizations do, but colleges and universities are really the biggest source of scholarships and grants. And so understanding how different colleges award scholarships and grants is really crucial to, to putting together a good list from a financial perspective because colleges all have their own policies. They all compete in different ways. They, they're all different. And so right. understanding how much aid your student might get at a particular college is really crucial to figuring this out. Right. And not only are they all different, but they're different depending on who the student is. So, exactly. you know, it's not like you can ever, I mean, in admissions in general and in probably in finance in general too, it's very difficult to make a blanket statement about everything, but for sure, yes, this exactly. is definitely one of those areas. All right. So, well, speaking of you know, how colleges are all different in the ways in which they award aid. How do they award aid? Well, so there are essentially two different ways they award. And when we talk about aid 
for today. We're going to really be talking about grants and scholarships. So there are two reasons. And the first is based on your family's financial need. And this is what we think of when we think of financial aid. So the college collects information about your income and your assets and your household size and a few other variables. And they collect that on this federal financial aid form called the FAFSA. Um, and then they determine what's called the expected family contribution, which is essentially your family's ability to pay. So they subtract that EFC from the cost of attending that college. And if there's a difference, then your family has need and your student might get some grants and scholarships to help meet that need. So that's one reason. Um, but the other reason, and, and a very important reason, um, the other reason that colleges award aid is based on your students' achievements and mm -hmm. other characteristics that your student might have that are attractive to that college. And um, so you'll often hear these referred to as merit scholarships, and they're mm -hmm. awarded pretty broadly by lots of different private colleges and even some public universities. Um, at College Coach, we actually like to call them recruitment scholarships rather than merit scholarships because while we'd like to think that, you know, colleges are rewarding your students' hard work, what's really happening is that colleges are trying to recruit your student to their campus. Yep. And so how much scholarship your son or daughter might receive is very much affected by how badly a particular school wants to enroll them. And this, as, as we've already said, varies from school to school, depending on the school and how your student fits into their applicant pool. So for example, if your student, based on their, uh, based on their academic profile, their GPA and their test scores, if they're in the top quartile of a student of a college's applicant pool, those are the places that are most likely to give your student a merit scholarship because colleges are competing for students. You know, they're trying to improve their reputation by building their profile um, and improving their profile. So they're they're going to treat the students who are in the top of their applicant pool the best. And gotcha. so another way to think about this is that the colleges where your student is most likely to be admitted those are also the places where your student is most likely to get the most generous scholarship award. Absolutely, and I tell families all the time that the REACH schools are great, but the colleges are basically going to assume you should be happy to be accepted because it's a REACH, exactly. uh, and they're yeah. not going to use that money for you. They're going to use that money they have on students for whom maybe that college was a safety. Yeah. Um, and, and that is the reality, that some schools are safeties for some and REACHs for others. Exactly. So... Obviously, students don't find out officially how much a college is going to award them until their senior year, until they've filed their applications and heard back. But is there any way to anticipate ahead of time what they might get from a college so that they can use that information to plan their list of colleges? Sure, there, there are some ways. And, and I will say it takes a bit of research and it's not mm -hmm. going to be perfect information, but, but families can get a sense of what might happen in the financial aid process. So first, if we look at need-based financial aid, um, there are some great tools out there that can be used to help you estimate how much need-based aid your child might qualify for at a college. Um, you can actually, the, the FAFSA website, fafsa.gov, has a tool called the FAFSA Forecaster where you can put in your information and they'll actually give you an estimate of your EFC or your expected family contribution. Um, but even more importantly, the colleges themselves are now all required to have a tool called a net price calculator on their website. So you can go to any college's website and you can search for their net price calculator. They'll ask you some information about um, your income and your assets and your household size. They may even ask you about your student's academic profile. 
and then they'll actually generate an estimate of how much it might cost for your student to enroll at that college. Now, it's just an estimate. It's just a start, but at least it will, will give you an idea. Um, recruitment scholarships or merit scholarships are a little bit harder to try to anticipate. Sometimes colleges will build that information into their net price calculator because they're trying to give as complete information as they can, but not mm -hmm. always. Um, so to try to anticipate how much your student might get in a merit scholarship, you really have to research the college's website. Um, you know, the admissions and financial aid office websites will always have information about what it takes to get aid um, as a first-year student, and they'll focus on first-year scholarships if they offer them. Now, some colleges are really transparent. They'll, they'll be so bold as to say, if you have this test score and this GPA, this is what you'll receive in a merit scholarship. But other colleges are more vague about it, and they'll just give some general language about how they award scholarships. Right. Um, you know, you can, while you're visiting a college, if you're in an admissions information session, it's perfectly fine to ask an admissions officer whether or not the college offers merit scholarships and what's the profile of a student who might get one. Um, and every parent in the room will be very happy you asked that question. <laughs> and I always like to remind people, they're not taking down your name if you ask that question, exactly. putting it in a file <laughs> and saying, we're not giving one to that student. Um, no. You know, the whole point is, um, especially when you're visiting schools and trying to decide whether you're going to apply, the whole point is you are the person who's shopping and you're the consumer and um, you are there to decide whether or not you will apply. So you should be asking these kinds of questions. Yeah. And, and you know. colleges absolutely understand how much affordability matters to families. I mean, they are keenly aware of how much affordability matters and they want to be as transparent as possible. Yes, exactly. And I mean, you would never walk into a store and say, I'll buy that dress without first finding out, or most people wouldn't anyway, how much <laughs> most it costs. Most people wouldn't. I wouldn't. All right, so we have time for one more question, and this is, I think, a really great one, and that is, you know, from a financial perspective, are there bad college lists and good college lists? And if so, you know, what makes something bad or something good? Well, yes, there are. There are bad and good college lists from a financial perspective. Let's start with the bad list. So a bad list might only have large out-of-state public universities on it. So in that case, you know, the family's going to be charged a higher tuition rate because they're from out-of-state. And public universities in general tend to have less institutional money to give away, both based on need and based on merit. So what can end up happening is, you know, with only large out-of-state public universities, you can end up paying a higher out-of-state price with not much aid to bring that price down. Um, another example, and I think we talked about this a little bit early on, is when a student is applying only to schools that are just right for them or challenging, if, if their list is very heavy with challenging or reach schools. Um, because remember, those schools aren't likely to offer them scholarships. So a colleague of mine, Carol Stack, who wrote a great book called The Financial Aid Handbook, she used to say, rather than reaching for, colleges, for a college, you might want to think about applying to colleges that are reaching for you. Yep. So you really want to make sure you've got colleges that are going to be no problem for you to get into. Um, and you could end up, you know, there are really a lot of great institutions out there. And, and sometimes those lesser known, less prestigious colleges would offer a fantastic education for you at a price that's much more affordable. So those are the bad lists. Okay. Um, a good list will, will be a well-rounded list, and it will have at least one institution on it that the family knows that they can afford without any kind of aid. And for most families, that's going to be the in-state public university option. 
Um, and then a good list will have at least a few no problem schools on it where the student would be happy to attend. So it's not just picking no problem schools to apply to to get in. Um, you want to make sure your student is, is going to be happy there. Um, and then, of course, these are the schools that are most likely to be affordable. And by having a few of them on the list, um, that may mean that you can leverage them against each other to try to get more money from the student's top choice, as we talked about last week with Shannon and we talked about negotiation. So exactly. a well-rounded list with a few, at least a few of those no problem schools on the list where your student will be happy. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I would add to that simply that for some families where the ability to pay is a real significant factor, mm-hmm. and there are definitely families out there who could swing the full price if they had to, or even families for whom full price is really not an, uh, a problem. And um, we haven't really talked about this yet in any of the shows, and we'll get to this um, in a future show around early programs, early decision, early action, mm-hmm. priority. Yeah. But early decision, which is binding, is never going to be a good choice for a family where the ability to pay is a significant factor in, in a school that you choose because you lose that ability to negotiate. And um, if it's a school that awards any kind of, um, I'm about to call it merit money, but I want to call it what we call it, the recruitment scholarship, <laughs> um, they're going to, um, they don't need to recruit you if you've committed to attending. So they're not going to give that money to you. Um, so yes, that would so probably if finances matter. Early decision usually isn't a good option. Absolutely, absolutely. great. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kathy. Um, Kathy will, is going to be back a, a little bit later in the show. She's going to answer any college-related, college finance-related questions that come through. So definitely stick around for that. And better yet, send in your questions to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com or call us at eight six six four seven two five seven eight eight. And we're going to be right back to talk essays. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. 
That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. One of the elements of the college application that I think scares students and parents the most Maybe after standardized testing, although for some people it's well above standardized testing, uh, is the college essay. And we review a lot of essays here at College Coach. You would not believe how many essays we actually review here at College Coach. One of the things that we know is that the key to a great essay can be, its I suppose not always, but I truly think of it this way, uh, starting with a great topic. So with that in mind, my colleague Ian Fisher, who is a former senior admissions officer at Reed College, is here today to talk to us about getting started on that main personal essay that accompanies many applications. So welcome, Ian. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Beth? Okay, great. I'm doing okay. It's still a lot great. of snow here. <laughs> I will tell you um, how nice it is here. So, so um, what would you say is the most important thing that you want people to remember about the personal statement when they start to think about it? Yeah, that, I mean, that's a great question. I have families often ask for advice around the college essay, and there's so much that you can talk about. I mean, you could fill 15 radio shows with information about the college essay. But I, I think the most important thing is, is really to think about how it fits into the application overall. So you have all of these other materials in your college application, like your transcript and your test scores and your letters of recommendation. And those are all aspects of your application that tell a story about you through an intermediary. So your transcript talks about your academic readiness through your grades. Your scores talk about your potential academically through your scores. Um, Your essay is really the one opportunity that you have to speak directly to the college admission officer. Um, It's your voice coming through. There's nobody else writing on your behalf. You choose the words. And so it's a a way for you to add something to your application that doesn't exist elsewhere in those materials. And that can be really meaningful, I think, in in exposing something about about who you are that that you really are excited about sharing. So um, it it really needs to be something that's that's personal. I mean, it's it's called the personal statement for a reason. And, you know, I encourage students to to underline that um, you want to talk about who you are and share that with, with a college admission officer. Right. And um, I think I agree with you. It is if you're not sharing something important about who you are, then you're not doing the job that you need to do to to make this application as compelling as it can be for you. Exactly. And I mean, you'll have a lot of great writers that will put together something that is a fantastic read and can be really interesting, but it doesn't tell you a whole lot about the kid. And so you know, you might have enjoyed that, you know, two minutes that you spent reading that essay, but it doesn't help give you ammunition to be able to advocate for that student in a committee. Absolutely. I used to, on my reader rating card at Penn, um, one of the comments that I would often make about an essay would be point with a question mark, as in what is the point? Because it was kind of hard to figure out what they were trying to share about themselves. And like you said, if they didn't make a point, didn't share something important about themselves, when I went into committee... I had a lot less to say about that student than I might about another student because I didn't really get to know them in that way. So most applications feature prompts. The Common App, for example, they have five different options, um, and these are meant for students to respond to them in the form of an essay. And I think that most colleges provide prompts because otherwise students often would have no idea where to start. Do you think that prompts are a good place to start when you start thinking about 
your topic. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, but when I was reading applications, I, I started reading the essay and I never looked to see which prompt the student checked off before I yeah. started reading their essay. Um, I could tell if it was the failure essay or if it's the place you're most content essay. I mean, they have a certain sort of tone for them. But as far as I was concerned, I wasn't really looking at the prompt for the common application um, because I just wanted to hear what a student had to say on their behalf. And so when I'm working with students, I throw the prompts out the window. In fact, for my first brainstorming sessions, I tell them not to even look at the prompts. I don't want to talk to them about how they might answer one of these four questions plus, you know, the fifth is sort of choose your own adventure anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't want them to get boxed in by what the question is asking. So I think that what you want to think about is what is the main point? You know, what's, some, what's the thing that I want to share? What, what's my topic going to be? And then the prompts can be really helpful in terms of giving a student a sense of how to construct their essay. So, you know, if you wanted to talk about um, your love of reading, for example, um, you could talk about that through the discussion of the place that you're most content. Um, And that's an opportunity for you to frame it in a particular kind of way. But I would want to sort of arrive at the sense that, you know, reading is really central to who you are before you say, I'm going to, you know, this is the prompt that I'm going to use. Right. I, you know, I would do exactly the same thing. I do sometimes offer up the prompts for a student who really struggles with that open-ended idea, um, but I try to turn to the prompts later in, the, in that brainstorming process, and like you say, let's focus on what you want to say first, and then maybe write the essay, and then see what prompt it works for. And, right. you know, occasionally maybe you have to tweak a line here or there to make it work for that prompt. Um, but because there is that option um, that you so called, you know, sort of choose your own adventure option, or I like right. to say, tell us about something, doesn't really matter what topic <laughs> it is, because yeah. you have that as a choice, that's always the fallback. Hey, if it doesn't fit any of these others, we'll just go with option one and you're good to go. Um, and, and I really, I reinforce that with my students who say, you know, well, isn't it really important for me to answer the prompts? I say, well, look at this one. It says, you know, some applicants have something so central to their identity or whatever. And, and it's like, that could literally be anything. And, and they say, oh, yeah, I guess that could. So it reinforces that answering the prompt is not really the goal here. It's, it's sharing the content. Yeah, and I do, I actually would love to talk about that for a second because I do see that advice frequently. You know, make sure you answer the question being asked. And I do think there is a difference between answering a very specific question that's being asked and writing a personal statement that, like you said, you know, with that particular question, it really could be about anything. And often, many of those could really be about anything. If you're going to answer the question about a place where you feel most content, make sure that at some point in the essay, there is mention of that place, but, um, you know, that's, you don't need to ever and probably should never start an essay with the, the place where I am most content is <laughs> right. exactly. my family summer house in Maine. By the way, that's probably just a bad essay in general. Um, right. But yes. And I, uh, I'll highlight that sentence if a student writes it anywhere. And, and what I say is, this reminds me that I'm reading a college admissions essay. And I don't, I don't need to be reminded that this is a college admissions essay. I want to get sort of lost in your story. I want to learn about you. I don't want to think about this as being written for the construct of this assignment. And so anytime you use the prompt itself in your, um, in your personal statement, you're just sort of re- reminding them that this is a college admissions essay, which, you know, is an obvious thing. But I think when you read that many applications, 
in a day, in a year, yep. um, you don't want that to be sort of beat over your head again and again by students. Well, and when it's a really refreshing change when you've read 20 that day that do beat you over the head with it, and then you get to one that doesn't. So I yeah. think that's a really great point. So with all of this in mind, what are some suggestions that you would make to help students get started in coming up with their own topic? Um, So what are some of the things that you do? Yeah, so when I work with students, I like to sort of start big picture, you know, we put everything away and just try to start asking them questions. Um, You know, I'll ask them, uh, start with how their friends would describe them. And I said, you know, if your friends were sitting here with me and they were telling me about you, what would they say? And and I don't want to hear what you want them to say. I want to hear what they would actually say. Um, and so, you know, they think a little bit about what their personalities are and their characteristics within the context of their friends. Um, and that's a lot easier to answer sometimes than, uh, you know, answering the question, how would you describe yourself? Because I think students always sort of revert to, I'm driven, I'm motivated, I'm academic, you know, sort of those yep. great adjectives that are actually really boring and describe, you know, 90% of students who are applying to colleges. Um, so I, I try and get them outside of that construct to think a little bit how other people see them. And that, I think, helps them to think about how they see themselves in a more honest or unique kind of way. Um, I'll ask them what they're most proud of uh, having achieved within the last three or four years. And, and maybe that's something that they can point to that has a diploma attached to it or a certificate or a trophy. And maybe it's something that has to do with personal growth and development and, and just feeling like they're you know, becoming a stronger person. Um, and so that can be a really great topic. Um, I'll ask them what role they play within the context of their friends. Are they um, a peacemaker? Are they a leader? Um, are they the comic relief? How do they sort of interact with the people around them? Um, and that, I think, gets them thinking a little bit more about being personal. And, you know, the reason I do this is because I think that high school students – sort of struggle to open up uh, verbally um, just to talk about their lives. And if you're going to open up in an essay, which you need to do if it's going to be a good one, you need to be willing to open up verbally to, to a counselor or to a parent or to a friend. And so it's a really great exercise to sort of break down kind of those, those walls of answering, you know, within the strict, I'm academic and motivated and ambitious, and instead think about what makes you, you. Um, I was talking to a student on the phone the other day, and um, she said she wanted to write an essay about how she'd always wanted to be a doctor since she was very young. And I said, you know, there are a lot of students who could write that same essay, that same general topic. A lot of students Mm -hmm. have wanted to be a doctor since they were very young. So what matters isn't that you wanted to be a doctor when you were six years old and and continue to want to be. It's, It's why. It's what reasons are specific to you so that this essay could only be about you, that it couldn't be about anybody else. So, you know, if you're writing about a topic that could apply to anybody else, if you got rid of your name, that essay would be true of, you know, 50% of the students applying to a college, then it's not personal enough. So you need to really drill down to something that's unique about who you are. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, of course, an excellent point. And I also think that sometimes... 
um, for some students, and this isn't really the average student, but there are some students for whom they have a particular distinguishing excellence or a passion or something that's actually fairly unique. So an example that I would give is a student I worked with a couple of years ago who was really passionate about the environment, and he was head of his school's environmental club, and he was really involved in recycling efforts. He did some stuff with local water testing, uh, and he actually was the youngest lead certified person in the country, which has to do with building environmentally friendly buildings. Um, and he wrote an essay about windsurfing. And, you know, my point to him was sort of, what is the point of this? And it didn't, to your point, feel particularly personal. And it also begged the question, gee, I wonder why he's so involved in all this environmental stuff that as a reader, I might have looked to the essay to find that out. And um, so for those students, the topic might be right there staring them in the face. Help your reader understand this passion that you clearly have. But it isn't understanding, you know, sort of what you do. We saw what he did in his list of extracurricular activities. It was more about the underlying why. You know, why do this? Why are you passionate about this? And, right. Um, yeah, I think one of the big goals with an application is that after the reader has gone all the way through it, that there are very few open questions. That yeah. I, I'm not looking back and saying, I wonder why he did this. Why did he take these classes? Why did these grades dip? Why is he involved in this recycling program? And if there are huge open questions in your application, your essay is a great opportunity for you to be able to, to add some clarity to that. And for a personal statement, if there is a distinguishing point of excellence that you have, now, that's a great way for you to be able to talk about why that's something that really matters to you um, beyond just the 150 characters that are provided for the, uh, you know, the activities list. Absolutely. So, Ian, thank you so much. I really appreciate you joining me today. And I think, as always, you had some great insights to share. So I appreciate that. And I'm glad we could share them with our listeners rather than just keep them internal. Um, yeah, thanks. thanks a lot. Absolutely. Thanks. And uh, don't go anywhere because after the break, Kathy Ruby and I are going to be answering your college admissions and finance questions. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. 
To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. So it's that time again when we answer your questions, and Kathy Ruby's here to handle anything finance-related because as previously established... I am definitely not the person to answer those, but I will take a shot at some of the admissions-related questions that have come in. But, Kathy, I'm going to start with a question for you, uh, and that is, my child is very high-achieving and is applying to some Ivy League colleges and some other private colleges that don't appear to offer merit aid. Because he's so high-achieving, his counselor assures us this is a well-rounded list. He's definitely going to get in somewhere. But is this a good list financially? That's a great question. That's a great question. And as as is true for all financial aid questions or college finance questions, it depends. <laughs> um, so this is a great question because it also um, points out something that we know is true, which is that not all private colleges offer merit aid. And the ones that don't are these very highly selective colleges. Um, and that's simply because, as we discussed, merit aid is market-driven and colleges need to attract students, but these highly selective colleges don't have to attract anyone. They have kids lining up the, out, out the door to get in. So, mm-hmm. so they um, focus primarily on need-based financial aid when they award aid, and they, they actually use a special calculation to calculate the expected family contribution, and they really delve into a family's finances to assess their ability to pay. And as a result, and, and because they're often wealthy institutions that are well-endowed, they also offer very generous um, financial aid packages to families who do qualify for need-based aid. So that's a good thing. But what's crucial here is that I think the, the listener needs to figure out what what is my financial need at these colleges? Because many times a college will calculate a family's need and the college defines what that need is. The family doesn't define it. And so yep. sometimes a college will define the need as something much lower than what a family really thinks they need to afford that institution. So, you know, this list is fine if the family is comfortable with what their expected family contribution will be at those colleges. Right, and I used to travel with uh, Georgetown, and I remember one representative saying something that I then picked up and started saying as well, which is that there can be a big difference between what a college estimates a family's need to be and what the family estimates their need exactly. to be. Yeah, um, and that's important to keep in mind. Yes, and it's it's a you know it's a complicated formula, um, and it's meant to distribute aid equitably among all of their applicants, and it just may not, you may not agree with their definition of what they think you need. Right. So, continuing on the list question, um, there's one that came in that's more admissions related, and this is from um, someone who is asking about... Um, you know, a student who is having an okay junior year, um, but is um, really hoping that, you know, sort of the end of junior year and the start of senior year are really going to um, bump that GPA up. And while the first round of testing didn't look so great, um, they're hoping that the second round is going to show an improvement. And so with that in mind, um would I suggest that they continue to look at some of the most selective schools like the Ivies and things like that? And, you know, for me, I think every year I have students who put together what I call wish lists. 
Um, and this sort of strikes me in the same vein, which is, you know, if I can get these scores on my third try or if I can get all A's, even though I usually get A's and B's, um, if I can be captain of my varsity soccer team, even though I pretty much ride the bench, then these schools will be in reach. And what I usually say to those students is you really can't bank too much on what is going to happen, especially if what you want to have happen is not what typically happens for a student or for your child. Um, so that means that if your child typically gets all, you know, a mix of A's and B's to imagine that suddenly in the most rigorous curriculum available, that student's going to now get straight A's is probably not realistic. Um, similarly, if a student is currently got a 30 uh, and they've done a lot of prep to get that 30 and now they, they're hoping that the very last time they take it, they're going to get that up to a 33, it's probably not going to happen. I mean, it could happen. Lots of things could happen. But the rule of thumb is that it probably won't. And the exception would be that it could. So I really encourage whenever possible people to, when they're putting together those lists, be realistic and honest, whether it's about your financial situation or about um, what the student has to offer from a grades and a rigor and a testing perspective and a what they've done outside of the classroom perspective. Because most of the time, by the time it's you're, you're putting the list together, a lot of those pieces are going to be more or less in place. All right. So, Kathy, I have another question that came in for you. And... Um, This is from a parent wondering about how um, she can talk about the financial aspects of the college list with her child. She doesn't want to discourage him from applying to the places where he wants to go, but she's not sure she can afford every school that he's interested in. So how to talk about that. Yeah, so this is this is really about managing expectations. And and I will say, you know, in in my 27 years of working in a financial aid office, the families that I saw have the most success in paying for college were, were the families, and, and regardless of how much money they made, how much money they had in the bank, these were the families that communicated with each other about what the parents were able to do, um, what the responsibility of the students might be, whether it was working or borrowing student loans, or but most importantly, that, that the adults and the students were in conversation with each other. So this is really about managing expectations um, and just saying to your child, you know, this, this isn't a blank check that I have, that we're going to have to look at affordability. You can certainly apply to the schools that, that you're dreaming of, um, and, and certainly we hope that you get in, but we can't make a decision about whether or not you can attend there until, until we know whether we can afford it. So let's make sure you have a good range of options and, and more than a few schools where you'll be happy um, so that, so that we, we can have a good outcome here. So it's really about managing expectations and really sitting down and having some conversations about what you can afford and, and what you're willing to do and what you're able to do. And, and my experience is that kids are, are, are ready for those conversations and they want to help you. They don't want to put a burden on you that, that, that you can't afford. Yeah, and I think good communication, I couldn't underscore that more and just that the most successful application processes feature good communication all around through every piece of it. So if your child is talking about going to California for school and you think that that California is simply too far for whatever the reason, maybe because you can't afford to fly them back and forth more than once a year or because you don't want them that far from you if you live on the East Coast or if you live in California and your child is talking about going to New England, 
and you don't think it's feasible for the feasible for those reasons that I just mentioned. Um, I've had the experience where the parents don't actually share that with the child. Go ahead, let them apply, and then they get in. And then they are surprised when the parent says, well, you were never going to go to New England. I mean, (laughs) I let you apply. But they didn't actually say that. And that is a lot harder for a student to handle than if everyone's clear up front. um, Yes, and they're hard conversations, but it's better if they happen ahead of time than on April 30th when you're trying to make a decision. Absolutely. So, Kathy, thanks again so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks to everyone who is out there listening today. Um, next week, we're going to be, you, you might be surprised or you might not, depending on the high school where you attend or where your child attends, but the national average these days of students to guidance counselors is almost 500 to 1. So next week, we're going to be welcoming a public school guidance counselor who's going to talk with us about how to get the most out of that relationship um, because the relationship with your guidance counselor is really important. They're going to be an important person in the process. Uh, then we're also going to cover one of my very favorite topics that might be one of yours too, Kathy, and that is financial aid advice that's too good to be true. We've all heard it, and um, Shannon Vasconcellos is going to join us to sort of debunk some of the myths that exist and, and tell you the straight deal. Um, Finally, we're going to talk through how the high school that you attend impacts your college applications. Does it impact them? And we're going to talk about that. Uh, Don't forget to send us your questions to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com or call us on the air next week at 866-472-5788. We are here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. And you can also listen to uh, our previous shows on the archives that are on the host page. Thanks again, everyone, and have a great day. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.